0: Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.
1: Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast.
0: Where our goal is to make politics more accessible and less intimidating. The show features an interview
1: with an expert in the political field, walking us through the many cues we have about politics, civics, government, and more.
0: By providing civic education in the places we are, on our phones. And in the language we speak. <laughs> yes, no, we say like a lot. It's
1: kind of fun. the point. Because <laughs> politics needed a rebrand. All righty. Welcome back to Girl Makeup the the podcast.
0: The 100th episode.
1: Samantha.
0: we I would stopped. snap. But it's literally, literally so, so humid here that my hands, hands are clammier than I, I don't a <laughs> comparison, but, but there is no snap no coming off of them. <laughs> no friction. Like I am, guys, like for y'all not watching on YouTube, I am drenched. I told Maddie, I was like, I need to just go on like a little walk around the corner, to like just get a, like, a little brain refresh before we hop on and record this part, like our intro. And I like, I knew it was warm up. I did not know it was a sauna, a literal sauna. I am drenched. I look like I jumped in a pool. Like, kind of in a cute way. Like, it looks
1: silky. I guess that was me this morning. I did hot yoga, and I was literally soaked. Soaked. The amount I sweat in those classes is so obscene. But anyways, back to our 100th episode. Happy 100th, Samantha. We have come so far. We really have. And we're... This is also... At the end of September will be our two-year celebration anniversary wild of this podcast to wild, like, wild wild
0: because it doesn't it's so funny like in one sense it feels like two years in another sense it totally doesn't and i don't know how to wrap my mind around it no it's like insane. we were in the the heat of the pandemic huh? locked down that starting it like it just it's so funny because it, there's also so many like different ways to look at growth and change and evolution throughout the brand from then from before from even like two months ago four months ago whatever it is time is an illusion and we're not numbers girls so I can't that's that's how I'm rationalizing not being able to get around 100 but we've made it this far
1: and if you know anything about podcasting you know everyone knows like everyone can start a podcast and like there's probably multiple people you know that have but the thing with podcasting is a lot of people don't stick with it they kind of just fizzle and the fact that we made it to 100 episodes is an accomplishment, and we couldn't
0: do it without you all listening. So True. thank you. So thank you. Yeah. We really appreciate all of you, for reals. Mucho, mucho, thank you. Especially, like, everyone that has shared the pod, posted about the pod, been, you know, listening in and sending us questions and just being, you know, generally good. I hate that we have landed on this term, but the govers, I just. I don't know. We're still still working on it, We're workshopping that still. That's not set in stone. We've, look, we've um, had a lot of evolutions, but our phrase for ourselves really still has not. Yeah, about. we need to figure something
1: out there. But I know. Taking nonetheless, have you also noticed we have some things in the hopper for the celebration of uh, yeah, yeah. 100 episodes? And honestly, I also just want to make one note: and the fact that mm. I just said in the hopper just shows <laughs> that I am 100 episodes in <laughs> with Samantha Cantor, because that is never, ever, ever, ever something I've ever said. Before I started this podcast, so
0: I just wanted to highlight that because, um, wow. I have officially made it as an influencer, clearly. Clearly, yeah. I've,
1: I've um, influenced. It's fun. 100%, 100%. But no, we have a few things, like I said, that we are doing to celebrate. One thing that you might have noticed is new intro, so mm-hmm. hope you guys like that. We graduated from that, but something I was telling Sam yesterday when we were recording, I was like, honestly, it's really impressive that our intro as... Many flaws as it did have, like made it this far, and and you guys, like it's just crazy too to think about when we recorded that, we literally barely knew each other. We've
2: ne- mm-hmm. we had never
1: podcasted before. We were like making our intro. We're like, how do we do an intro? What's a podcast? What like and it made it a hundred episodes in. So kudos to her. We love her. We're proud of her for making it this far. But we also made a specific special intro for the top stories episode which re- was released yesterday so if you didn't catch that episode go head over there after this to listen to the new intro there but also listen to the top stories where we talk about the trump fbi updates do you also like how i put trump x fbi the club
0: <laughs> it's the remix the, the oh no trump- sorry it's the X-FBI mashup FBI of the, the century yes okay so, cute. so cute. it's launching
1: yeah, student ever leave and the GOP losing this red wave they've been talking about. So we talk all about all of that, the top stories from yesterday, and the new intros in there. There's a few other, like, well, one other little, like, oh. production moment that's added in there that you have to go listen to here.
0: That is true. And I, I do have an asterisk to that, aka just an add-on, is... Part of the reason that we also did a little a little change up on these intros is we wanted to be really clear from the jump as to what each type of episode was about. So if you're sharing an episode with a friend, say it's our interview from this past week with Gabe Roth, and you're like, hmm, like, okay, my friends never listen to Girl on the Gov. They're, you know, I gave them, like, a one-liner on it, but they don't really know. They, in listening to the episode, will also get the four-on-one on, like, what the show's about, how it's organized, et cetera. Totally. And we just want to make it really clear and easy for you guys for when you share those episodes. Hey, well, you know what, what it is. Bada-bing, bada-boom.
1: Another thing that we've done in celebration of this 100th episode is even expand on that clarification when you do share Girl on the Gov with your friends, and that is our new trailer slash basics episode slash introduction episode we are adding a trailer into our podcast page so exactly what sam said if they head right to an episode they'll have a little explainer in the intro but if they want even more on us then we are actually releasing a trailer with a ton of things in it actually so Buckle up here for a second, and we'll explain it. <laughs> but basically, we're releasing this trailer episode. It will be pinned on our podcast pages so that it's at the top. And for any new listeners, they will head there and be able to learn more about what Girl in the Gov is, what we do, what the podcast is, our founding story, Sam and I's backgrounds. And so again, when you know your friends are like, "Why the fuck are you so obsessed with this Girl in the Gov brand?" You can send them this, and they'll they'll get the whole. You know, spiel and they'll be hooked too. So that's what's going on there. But there's also another piece of that trailer that we are adding in that includes some political learning.
0: Facts, 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 because we are integrating a glossary. So, one of the, I would say, like founding pillars, for lack of a term that's not corporate jargon, about Girl in the Gov is trying to make all of the terms that we hear in politics easier to understand and when we mean easier to understand obviously we can't change the actual term but what we can do is provide definitions and background on those terms that actually make sense to us spoken in our language as we always say, wait Samantha I
1: think that the entire girl in the Gov brand was built on the foundation of the question what is gerrymandering <laughs> <laughs> and... it really is That is literally going to be the first question in our audio glossary in our trailer. Mm -hmm. So, sorry, keep
0: going. For that reference, Maddie is making fun of me because in genuinely every type of pitch meeting we have, and we're explaining the premise for our brand, I always use gerrymandering as the example. Anyways, back to this audio
1: glossary. Right now, we're going to have, I think we're a little over 10 words terms (laughs) that we are defining in this audio glossary we we're going to continue to add to it so if you guys Mm -hmm. have any suggestions of any definitions you want to see put in there whether it's been in an episode or not we can record also definitions on our own or use old explainers from guests but we want to continue to add to this glossary to make it as helpful for everybody as possible there'll be timestamps, you can just easily scan over and go listen to the definition you want to hear. And same thing, like, if you have friends who are like, I've never known what that means, who maybe haven't heard of Girl in the Gup, it's a great thing to share to hopefully get mm. them, you know, on the train of getting their political learning started. So it's a great just shareable moment for yourself, for your friends, for your family to continue political learning and get all those definitions that we are expected to know, but we just we just don't. And it's no, it's no one's fault, but... The government. <laughs> Fuck them. <laughs> uh, anyways. But yeah, yeah. that is our 100th episode celebration. We got new intros. We got a new trailer. And yeah, we're just super excited to continue this
0: journey with you all. We are. We are. And we are also excited to tell you about an additional venture that we have, mm-hmm. as Mario said, in the hopper. In the hopper. <laughs> Well, it's, it's out of the ball. hopper now. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. it is out of the hopper. The thing that's now out of the hopper is our newsletter called Hashtag Viral. It is a paid newsletter, so you have to pay to subscribe. But it is basically social media consulting right to your inbox. So if you are Politico, that means you are an elected official. You're running for office. You're a head of an organization in the political space. A pack. a A nonprofit, whatever it is, you somehow work in the political space. Let's just put it that way. And you need help with social media. You need an idea of how to use platforms, right? The basics. You need an idea of the best practices, the trends, the tips and tricks for elevating your platform. And your platform could be, you know, the organization you work for, the elected you work for, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I was going to say, if you're a staffer,
1: I know you have some staffers that listen. Mm -hmm. If you know that or have been thinking that your boss, aka the elected you work for, needs some help in the social media department or they want to kick off their social media accounts on different platforms or whatever it is, then pass along to your comms director or pass along to your press secretary. Yeah. Favorite part of it is the content ideas. Content is really hard to make. It's hard to be a content creator. It's hard to think of new ideas and to also tie it into like what could actually go viral, what could actually get a lot of eyes on it. So we provide fresh content ideas every single week. So you can head to girlinthegov.com slash newsletter to learn about it and to also subscribe. So go check it out.
0: Speaking of newsletters, we have one more to plug we do and this is on the career front it's called the assist this newsletter comes out a number of times a week including a weekend edition and it is tips and tricks on all things workplace from work-life balance how to negotiate a raise different trends to look out for in terms of corporate hiring and just jobs in general this is your like go-to newsletter for advice on that front it is super digestible it's super easy to read we're obsessed. We are avid readers of this newsletter, obviously. So if you want to join us in reading this newsletter, aka The Assist, you can check out the link in our description here, but it is theassist.com. And when you go and sign up for this newsletter, and of course, share it with your friends as well to sign up, you can say that you found the newsletter via Girl in the Girl, the Podcast. So make sure you toggle down and click on yours truly, aka us, us. Go check them out. Linked
1: in our episode description. But let's finally get into introducing our guests because we actually have a double header today. That's why mm-hmm. the episode's a little long. <laughs> but it's a good one and a very, very important one. So, Samantha, will
0: you do the honors? Absolutely. Both of these interviews gave me so much serotonin. I can't even begin to tell you. And so much just genuine hope for the future. I genuinely am so excited. We are talking about ballot measures today, and we are talking from two different state ballot measure perspectives. We're talking from Arizona. We're also talking from Michigan. Yes, I will also say, too, that we, especially when Roe was overturned, we
1: had a lot of people curious about this ballot measure process. So, This has been a conversation on TikTok. A lot of people have been curious how to implement things like this in their state. So this is a great episode for you to learn about that process and who to reach out to if you are trying to make some change in your state.
0: Totally. And like we said, this is a doubleheader episode. So we start off with Kelly Hall from the Fairness Project talking about the ballot measure process in Michigan as it relates to reproductive rights. There will be a... Ballot measure on, well, you guessed it, the ballot this November. So we talk about the process of getting there, what that's looked like, and of course, what needs to happen in November to get that over the finish line. Second to that, we also talk about this ballot measure process from the perspective of Arizonans. From Arizonans for Reproductive Freedom, we have Amy Fetch Heacock, and we go all in on what became this really crazy last minute process to try and get a ballot measure on the ballot for. Arizonans it didn't actually get on the ballot which is obviously a bummer but this episode is super important because there's so much more work to be done ahead of 2024 so especially if you're from Arizona you're going to want to listen to this conversation because this is kind of an instruction manual for what needs to happen next and also a huge congratulations for the amazing work that they did in such a little Mm -hmm. amount of time to make this magic happen oh my god I was like I had chills so without further ado here is Kelly and here is Amy All right. Well, we have a lot to talk about today because you are the executive director of the Fairness Project, and we are going to go 10 ways to Sunday about what you guys do and one of the specific campaigns you guys have been working on. But before we do that, we want to get the four on one. What's the overarching theme that you guys work with? What do you guys do? What happens at the Fairness Project?
2: Well, first, thank you so much for having me. I love this question. We could spend the whole time talking about this. So, the Fairness Project exists to run ballot measures that support working families. So, ballot measures enable people to pass laws directly themselves without going through politicians, without waiting for our elected officials to do the right thing. And so, the Fairness Project works with advocates and leaders on the ground in states and cities around the country to make sure that when they put an issue that's really important to them in front of voters that it wins so we help soup to nuts on things like how do you draft a ballot measure that is going to win what polling do you need to have in order for it to succeed what does it take to run a winning campaign and so we are the fairy godmothers of ballot measures coming in to help folks who have the vision who know what their community needs, who are fed up with politics as usual to actually come in and and get it done.
1: That's awesome. I love that. You also, you guys have won 24 ballot measures.
2: Is that correct? Can you tell us about some of those? Sure. So we've been around since 2015 and we started out as an organization that primarily supported ballot measures to raise the minimum wage. The minimum wage has been stuck at the federal level for decades. It is like not even $8 in most states and cities around the country. So when you put the question to voters, do you want to raise the minimum wage? It is really popular, but it takes a lot of effort to get that question on the ballot to make sure you have a winning campaign. Yeah. So we have worked on a whole bunch of ballot measures in everywhere from Arizona to Missouri to Maine. To raise the minimum wage. And the other big issues that we've worked on have been expanding Medicaid. There's an option for states to expand Medicaid and cover more people with health insurance with almost entirely federal dollars, and it has just been stuck with partisan ideological politics. And so even in deep red states or places that people think are really conservative, like Idaho and Oklahoma and Nebraska, we've been able to put that question directly to voters and expand Medicaid in six states already. So we've worked on wages, we've worked on healthcare, we work on ending predatory payday lending and expanding benefits for people. In this cycle, we're also expanding into making sure that we protect reproductive rights. And so as we look at that nexus of politics, of healthcare, of really what are the bread and butter issues that are shaping what people need for their families those are the issues that we try to bring forward and say this can't be stuck in political back and forth anymore let's just get it done straight at the ballot
0: yeah totally political ping pong is one of those games you just there's never like a set end time there's never a certain amount of sets it's like we're just playing all day all night all all But you guys clearly get stuff done. And I'm really curious, like, is there a secret sauce that you guys work with? I mean, obviously not the really crazy pink sauce that's gone viral and it might be poisonous on TikTok. But, you know, what's in the the strategy here that makes these ballot measures actually get across the finish line?
2: So I think there's a few elements of the secret sauce. And it's not that secret. I wish more people would pick up the recipe and do it. (sighs) It is first there are. Picking issues that are really common sense issues that are broadly popular. And a lot of these issues that affect working families where you can go, okay, you might have different views about how you want to reshape the broad structure of our country, but we can all agree that wages need to be higher. We can all agree that low-income working families deserve healthcare. So one, picking issues that are simple and straightforward um, is a big part of it. And not writing off the middle of the country and saying, it doesn't matter who you're voting for for president. Oklahomans want more health care. Missourians want higher wages. And so we have really focused on expanding the map where progressives can operate because if we can win with over 60% of the vote on an issue in Idaho or in Oklahoma or in South Dakota you go like, all right, what else is possible here? How do we make sure that we're not just sticking to the coasts or just sticking to what people have labeled as blue or red? And I think the last ingredient in the secret sauce is remembering that these issues themselves are not inherently partisan. And if we're going to win in those states, we really need to make sure that we're saying, You don't have to set down your whole identity of being a Republican or being Mm -hmm. a Trump voter or whatever else in order to vote yes on this issue. You can have your opinion about gun control, whatever it may be, but have a different opinion about minimum wage or a different opinion about reproductive rights. And I think that that enables us to really have broader, more expansive conversations with people who might vote for Trump for whatever reasons they do, but also want their grandkids to have access to healthcare. And so yeah. that, I think, constructing campaigns that help people take their like party affiliation off and are able to make real progress in these states, even while other people are having partisan battles, that really feels like the fundamental element.
1: Totally. I think that's so important, that like simpl- simplifying part of it. That I think so many people struggle with just with politics in general because it's like when you go to vote for a candidate you're voting for a long list of issues and policy stances that you may like some might resonate some might not and sometimes you just have to like pick that's why everyone's like the lesser of two evils or whatever it is you know but it's also funny because I feel like Sam and I keep talking about too like even when You get to Congress, how they push through these huge legislative packages that have all these different issues packed into them. And it's like they can't always, they don't always work or get passed. And it's like, well, because there's so much going on. It's like, how can we simplify that process perhaps there as well? But ballot measures are such a perfect way to do that, especially for the individual voter, which we love to see. But to understand how this process works a little bit better, can we get into our I have a stupid question segment? Because can you explain
2: what is a ballot measure? Sure. No stupid questions when it comes to ballot measures. I feel like we've all been failed by the public education system when it comes to civics education. So ballot, ballot measures are a way for people to directly pass laws or constitutional amendments in their states without the involvement of politicians. So the basics are a group of concerned, interested, motivated, activated citizens comes together and drafts the law or the constitutional amendment they want to see. They collect enough signatures from their fellow voters in their state, all of whom are signing a petition to say, I want the opportunity to vote on this. Mm -hmm. If they collect enough signatures, that direct question goes on the ballot for the entire electorate of that city or state to vote on. And if they pass it, if more people vote yes than no, then that directly becomes law or gets written directly into the constitution of the state. Now, there's plenty of other steps in there. There's a lot of money spent on a big yes or no campaign. Vote yes on Proposition X or vote no on Proposition Y, just like you would see Candidates campaigning over who should, who people should vote for. But the fundamental basics are on issues where you can really boil it down into a simple single topic. You can put these issues directly in front of voters. And I will say, not every state in our country has this option. Only 23 states around the country can you do it at the statewide level. But lots and lots and lots of additional cities, municipalities, counties can pass ballot measures too. So no matter where you live, it's worth thinking about, is a ballot measure part of the strategy you want to advance on the issues that you care about?
0: Mm-hmm. I have another question that your answer just totally sprung up in my head. Great. In terms of the groups, organizations, entities behind promoting specific ballot measures, who are those groups? Like I feel like from time to time, whenever – one has popped up I've seen you know like you said like lots of signs kind of you know like campaign signs that you see for a candidate and oftentimes when you go to google like what the side is what you know either side the yes or the no it's really confusing and you can't quite figure out like where the information is coming from and so I'm just curious I know each issue might have different groups involved but like largely who are the players in this
2: So I think, unfortunately, your instinct that it really varies by issue is right. So there's no one answer here. I will say that the campaigns that I trust and the ones that we are involved in are really transparent about who's behind them. So it is, you know, a badge of honor to have a large, diverse coalition of local and national organizations all aligning behind one ballot measure. So on a Medicaid expansion ballot measure, which is a huge healthcare issue, but also a big economic issue. These campaigns have had everybody from the American Cancer Society to AARP to the leading hospitals, the Chamber of Commerce, leading grassroots organizations. We're working on a campaign right now on Medicaid expansion in South Dakota that has the endorsements of dozens of Native American tribes, as well as these other stakeholders. And all of those folks are really proud to put their names, their logos, their information on the websites of those campaigns. Where it starts to get a little bit dicier and where you can read between the lines is when you can't figure out who is behind the ballot measure. Mm. The answer is probably that it is somebody who's really invested in the status quo, whether that's the ideological status quo or corporate funders who are you know, against raising the minimum wage or against expanding healthcare for their own sort of, I'm already at the top of the heap and I'm not interested in change kind of motivations. But I think mm-hmm. for those campaigns that we are really proud to be affiliated with, you can go see on their websites, here's all the folks who are endorsing it. Here's all the folks from around the corners of the state, because ballot measures when they're done well should be a really vibrant expression of an issue whose time has come that's broadly popular in the state it's gotten stuck in the state legislature and people are like pretty proud to say we're doing this for ourselves Mm -hmm. yeah
0: totally no that makes a lot of sense. especially i remember last i guess it was last fall i was in maine and i don't remember exactly what the ballot measure was. I can't remember. It was something with either waters, highways, something along those lines, infrastructure in general, and spending, and I remember looking stuff up and being like, huh, can't figure it out. Obviously, I know if I can't, well, not obviously, but I'm like, "Okay, there's something shady here, but I'm not quite sure and whatnot. So I was curious. But nonetheless, we do want to talk about another distinction, and that is ballot measure versus proposition, which is definitely Maddie's territory because California and propositions. My god, you guys have so many can't keep up. What's the difference?
2: This is just a terminology difference. And every state or jurisdiction uses a different term. It is confusing unnecessarily, but ballot measure is a really good catch-all term. Sometimes they're called ballot initiatives. Sometimes they're called ballot propositions or just propositions. Sometimes we refer to them as amendments because we are amending the state constitution. So I would say don't let the vocabulary dissuade you. If folks are able to collect signatures and put it on the ballot themselves, that's a ballot measure, a ballot initiative, you know, call it whatever you want to. And there are some instances where legislatures themselves can refer a core question to voters, they want to sort of punch the ball and those things get called ballot measures as well. So when you're when you're looking at a question that's an actual voters get to make the law and they get to have the final say on their ballot, you know, in the voting booth. That's a ballot measure as far as we're concerned. Got it, got it.
1: You kind of touched on this earlier, but the whole partisanship of these ballot measures and how, you know, oftentimes it's a good way to kind of take the party loyalty out of some of these issues to get them implemented. Can you kind of explain whether ballot measures are typically partisan or nonpartisan and like also do we see ballot measures where there are kind of either of the two big established establishment parties behind them like can you kind of ex- like paint that picture as well of where the parties come in and if they do
2: Sure so ballot measures are not formally partisan there's no need to register a ballot measure with a political party there's no partisan primaries for ballot measures. And typically the state parties or the national political parties don't play a particularly huge role in ballot measures generally. So on the whole, the answer is these things are not partisan. And as I said before, especially when we're working in red and purple states, we need to have a cross-partisan coalition to get enough voters to come together to advance something. There are not enough Democrats in Idaho to just pass, you know, Medicaid expansion on its own. So it's really a strength of ballot measures, I think, that they're non-partisan. Now, that said, a lot of the issues that we work on are affiliated macroscopically with one party or the other. And I don't think we can deny that that's true. And then it becomes part of the strategy of a ballot measure campaign. Do you lean into that and say, Mm. look, abortion rights are deeply under attack. It's time to come out and protect them. And everybody from, you know, Elizabeth Warren on down (laughs) should come out and like be a part of this campaign no matter where it is. Mm. Or do you, say to folks in other jurisdictions this is not about the party you do not need to declare yourself a democrat in order to care about this particular issue and i think that that really depends a lot on where the campaign is being run what the issue is what the environment is and that's you know part of the overall strategy but i yeah the short answer would have been no these are not partisan
1: well i'm curious <laughs> what you guys have found in some of your strategies like what what does help like do some big name endorsements help push things over the finish line or because you're trying to appeal to people from a range of like ideological the spectrum is it better to not include those big political names to then ultimately make it political and steer some people away who might actually hop on board like
2: have you guys found either way is like the better strategy I think that the in the vast majority of the places we work the things that are most helpful are odd bedfellows in the same coalition so What's when that? you have you know two party co- two campaign co-chairs and i'm going to use our Idaho Medicaid expansion campaign as an example one of the co-chairs of that campaign was from an organization called reclaim idaho an amazing grassroots affiliated organization and the other was a former legislature legislator deep conservative republican owned a gun shop had an NRA bumper sticker on the back of her car and both of those folks were the co-chairs of this medicaid expansion campaign because they could agree on that and i think that having endorsements from folks that people don't expect like major business leaders or in the case of you know minimum wage small business owners those things really matter i think it's like the, this must truly be a common sense solution, a middle ground solution if we've got folks on both ends or from weird parts of the political spectrum coming together. I don't think it surprises anyone when major progressive celebrities come out in favor of some of these things that are you know, progressive priorities. So I love to find those odd connections because that helps us reach a different kind of voter. Totally. So I think that's the most important piece. Interesting.
0: I love that. Mm-hmm. I love the the odd couple. It's yeah. Like fairly odd parents, fairly odd couples here. I mean, we know we have a question in Fast Five about fun couples later. So I feel like this is like, it's setting the stage perfectly. Perfect. Which we love. And we also have a question on sort of the smaller, the- I don't know if "micro" is really the right word, but just the smaller scale of like towns, cities, etc., and ballot measures, is the process any different at that level in terms of making those happen than at the state level? It, like, what does that look like?
1: Yeah, and Undo- also, does like the policy issues like differ on that level
2: as well, like versus it's the state level? Like, totally. So the process is pretty similar. Again, the basics are come together around an idea get your ducks in a row to make sure this is the policy you want, collect enough signatures to put it on the ballot, campaign for people to vote yes, and then enact it on election day. But the issues do really vary, and it sort of goes back to what issues that level of government is responsible for. So we saw some really interesting ballot measures relating to police accountability at the local level in 2020 and 2021. We mm-hmm. were involved in one in Cleveland to create a really phenomenal citizen oversight commission that succeeded. That's hard to do at the statewide level because yeah. every city governs their own police department. Right. We can't expand Medicaid on a city by city basis. And so we don't get to do that, you know, just in Jacksonville, right. Florida, as opposed to the whole state. So it mm-hmm. does vary what issues you can put on the ballot but there are some that are the same. We've won minimum wage increases at the statewide level, and we've also done it at the municipal level. Just last fall, Tucson, Arizona, voters voted for a $15 minimum wage there, just going to be higher than the rest of Arizona. So there are some issues that you can take locally or statewide, and it really just depends on the scale of your ambitions, what's possible, and, and sort of what the issue is. We got to make a little Venn diagram
1: of like state, local, in the middle, what you can do both. We'll just
0: we'll Wait, work on I that. Wait, I miss Venn diagrams. I, I know. they're And like helpful. graphs. <laughs> like I think that was the only part of math class that I liked was I know, making graphs. I was like, graphs, I Because then I got fun <laughs> pens and I could color them in. OK, yeah. anyways, we are getting very distracted. I could go yeah. down a whole rabbit hole about highlighters and Venn diagrams. Oh, boy. We want to go over to Michigan. Great. And we want to talk about the Reproductive Freedom for All campaign obviously, or like eyes on the prize with this one for sure, but we want to fill everyone else in on this. What is this campaign? What are the details? How did we get here? Give us a on one.
2: So I think the most exciting ballot initiative ballot measure in the country this year is in Michigan. It's the reproductive freedom for all campaign And it really is an extraordinary story of how we got here that goes back all the way to 1931, which is Michigan has a law on the books from 1931 that criminalizes the provision of abortions. So that when the Dobbs decision came down and even before then folks in Michigan were aware, this is the underlying law. If we don't do something, if we don't have a strategy No matter who the governor is or who's in a state house, this is what we're left with. It could immediately impact the provision of reproductive health care in Michigan. So that was the crisis that folks in Michigan were facing. And they decided to take a multi-pronged approach. Going back to last year, major leaders in the state, Planned Parenthood of Michigan, ACLU, Michigan Voices, which is an incredible grassroots organization, and dozens of other Local organizations that care about this issue came together to be like, okay, we're going to file lawsuits. We're going to try to elect the right candidates. We are also going to qualify a constitutional amendment to the Michigan constitution that proactively protects people's reproductive rights. We can't afford to have any of these strategies fail, but the constitutional amendment is the most durable, permanent, Way of protecting reproductive health care in Michigan. And so that started off, and you know, multi million dollar, tens of thousands of people coming together to collect enough signatures to put that on the ballot. It will be in front of voters this November. And I hope that the vast, vast majority of people in Michigan will vote yes on that constitutional amendment to make sure that it's a permanent right to reproductive healthcare in Michigan, one that is unaffected by which politicians are elected into the right positions of power in that state. Yeah. I have
0: a silly question. I'm ready. Well, I don't know if it's silly. It's just, it's smaller, smaller than the rest. And that is in terms of like the petition process to physically get signatures in person and you can't do it online. And I'm curious, in Michigan, is it the same way where you have to do it in person and also like if so, is that something that could change? Because I feel like that's super out of date for like a millennial or Gen Z. Like, I don't know, like if someone, maybe this is also a New York thing, someone came up to me with a clipboard, I'd be like, are you trying to rob me? Like, is this, are we gonna duke it out? Like, that would be my reaction or I would just ignore them. And I don't mean that in a mean way, it's
2: just like- I know. The culture. It is, it's a huge barrier it is a physical, in-person, ink-on-paper situation. It is, that's true in Michigan, it's true almost everywhere. Even during COVID, there were not really any exceptions to this process. And I will say, you're right that it's an out-of-date. You're right that it's hugely burdensome. The odds are really stacked against advocates who are trying to take this approach to making change. We had to turn in over seven hundred and fifty thousand physical wow. signatures in Michigan to put that on the ballot, and that is no small feat. It takes That's heavy. It it's really heavy, and I I, I've
1: been some men carrying those those briefcases <laughs> full of signatures. very
2: very strong women and people of all genders. <laughs>
1: yes, there we go. Um,
2: I think that your question about is this going to change, I'm going to take us on a little brief tangent off of your little question, which is in order for it to change, it would require more people in positions of power who want to make it easier for us to pass ballot Mm. measures, not harder. And if you can think about sort of all the reasons why our current political system wants to make it harder to pass ballot measures, not easier you'll get a sense of my pessimism about whether this thing is actually going to change because reality is politicians, whether they be governors or city councilors or state legislatures, they don't love it when people go around them and pass laws themselves. They're like, we Mm, have a hold on decision-making here. We have been telling people for years that our voters don't want Medicaid expansion, don't want minimum wage. How dare you come in and prove us wrong. So those politicians, rather than making it easier to collect signatures, are passing laws to make it harder, saying every single sheet needs to go to a public notary in addition to you getting it signed. You need to have your entire petition printed on one sheet of paper, which means they're like the size of bath towels. It's like all sorts of weird things to make it harder including that in a bunch of states, they're trying to change it from passing with just a majority of the vote to needing 60% of the vote to pass ballot measures. Mm. And so the trend unfortunately is pushing in the other direction of it being harder to get things on the ballot and win rather than easier. And I hope that we can stem that tide, but it is for now. What if we make a ballot measure
1: to make it digital?
2: That is a great solution, and I'm here for it. When you're okay. ready, to, when you're ready for that, I am here for it. We
1: can spearhead this initiative. Just let us yep. know. I'm Obsessed. I'm ready. It's yep. been launched.
2: It's been launched here. Soft launch. You know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Soft launch. We're in the brainstorming process, but we will we will start start this for sure. You mentioned too in Michigan how many signatures you guys got. Can you kind of paint the picture of like the organizing efforts around this and how Michigan just absolutely shot out of the water?
2: Yeah this this is a story that is really the story of grassroots organizing and the groups on the ground. This is you know there's a lot of things as a national organization that we at the Fairness Project can help with. Actually being there physically manning tables at farmers markets and going door-to-door and, you know, really doing the yeoman's work of collecting signatures is the story of tens of thousands of Michiganders who should be incredibly proud. So it takes, no, it takes a gajillion clipboards, a lot of (laughs) training people to be able to talk to voters who think that they're getting mugged and are actually not getting mugged. To say, like, no, this is a ballot measure that does this. Here's who supports it. Here's, I'm not asking you for money, I'm just asking you for your signature. And then somebody has to go through all of those and make sure is this person really a registered voter? Are they signed? Have they signed the right address on their form? So, in addition to collecting all those signatures, and over a third of those signatures were collected by unpaid volunteers in every single corner of the state. Also, somebody has to sift through them, put them all in boxes, yeah. turn them all in. So it is a really big operation that folks, it's it's hard to overstate what a big deal it is and how important it's been for people to have a place to channel their outrage about what's been happening at the Supreme Court level, to really get out there and say, we're taking this back into our own hands. We're doing it for ourselves. And I think that is what has powered all of those folks in Michigan who did who came together to do that.
1: Yeah to kind of understand too a little bit more about this process. The, the thing is too when we when the whole everything was coming out about Michigan and the success there, you know, we made some TikToks, we had a lot of people be commenting being like, "How can I do this in my state? Do you have any advice or just for people who not only for, you know, reproductive freedom but for any issue they're looking to possibly get on the ballot? Like what does that process really look like? Like are there organizations that can spearhead this and like write these ballot measures. Can you just walk us through from like this idea of I want to get this on the ballot? Like if you are especially maybe just like a regular citizen, like how how do you go about doing that?
2: Sure. So one, come to us at the Fairness Project. We are happy to help. And none of this really happens just from a single person alone. It is a huge team effort. And so I think the most successful ballot measures have a really strong combination in their early, early days of people who are really motivated, whether they're individual citizens or organizations and know their locality, the politics of their space really well. And also people who have done this before, whether it's on that issue or in that jurisdiction who know where all of these like booby traps and speed bumps are buried. Because as I said before, it's not an easy process to navigate. So I would say- If you are motivated to get an issue on the ballot, look around and go, okay, who are the organizations? Is it the local Planned Parenthood in your area? Is it the local ACLU? Is it grassroots organizers who have been, you know, labor unions who have been fighting for a higher minimum wage? And figure out who is the right little Who's already doing the work? Yeah. Who's doing the work and go like, okay, have we thought about a ballot measure? Are we done banging our head against the wall of the city council or the state legislature? And then give us a shout because it is truly, is a long process. We are already starting right now on things that will go in front of voters in 2024 because it takes a long time to go, yeah. all right, get the lawyers together and draft a thing, whole, figure out what's possible, what ballot language will be most popular with voters Who's going to come together around funding this thing? I wish that it was possible to just say with sheer, you know, elbow grease and willpower, it's possible to get this constitutional amendment passed. It usually takes a lot of people and a lot of money to get it done. And so that work starts really early. And I think having a combination of national and state organizations coming together is usually what gets it over the finish line. And I think there are some really powerful stories of how we can work together to make sure that everybody is playing to their greatest strength. As I said before, in Oakland, California, where I live, I cannot be out there collecting signatures in Ann Arbor, Michigan to put it on the ballot. They've got to do that directly themselves. That's their greatest strength. Us figuring out, okay, what's all the legalese that needs to happen? what's this campaign strategy and the polling and the budget for this thing Mm going to look like really coming together around, you know, who can best do what I think is can start really early and it's never too early to start thinking about it. Totally.
1: Can you run us through some ballot measures or propositions that are on ballots this year that like you think should be highlighted that, you know, across different states, you know, we have people from all over the place, like what people, what are some of the ones you're really watching?
2: Absolutely, so we've talked about Michigan reproductive freedom for all, super jazzed about that one. There's also another proactive protect reproductive freedom ballot initiative in Vermont that will be on the ballot and California. So of course, Vermont and California, a little bit less on the front lines of whether reproductive rights are gonna be stripped away immediately, but it's still really important that people in those states vote yes and send a really definitive signal that this is what the electorate wants. So those are the three proactive ones on repro rights that I think are incredibly important. We're going to expand Medicaid to 42,000 people in South Dakota this year. South Dakota will be the seventh state that has taken up that option to do Medicaid expansion through a ballot measure, and that's pretty exciting. Voters in Nevada and Nebraska will be voting on higher minimum wages. So that is a big deal. We would love to see people get a raise at the ballot box. And there's a lot of exciting things, some good, some not so good in Arizona on the ballot box. It's going to be a long ballot in Arizona. But one of the things that's exciting there is an effort to protect people from predatory medical debt. One in three Arizonans is is. In debt collection right now, this helps people by lowering interest rates, protecting more of their assets from bankruptcy and and debt collection, really helps to interrupt the cycle of poverty that so many people get sucked into. And so very excited about that initiative at Arizona. So there are others that we're excited to have a full slate of things that are a diversity of issues and a diversity of states that we're working in. But those are some highlights. Are there any sneak peeks for
1: 2024?
2: I don't think that Michigan is gonna be the last place we see advocates using a proactive strategy to put reproductive freedom on the ballot. I think where and in what form um, is still, there's a lot of work to do, but I think that that's one that you're gonna see come up again in 2024. And the more that people are feeling frustrated about a particular issue and the lack of action at the federal or state level, the more likely it is to come to the ballot. So I would say, think about the things that people are most amped about. It is, of course, reproductive freedom is up there, but we could see gun control measures come to the ballot box. We could see you know, things related to climate change, we could see things really related to wages and economic inequality. I personally hope that some of the things that were in the federal Build Back Better package that is not getting done at the federal level are going to come to ballot boxes near you. Paid family medical leave, we have seen pass at the ballot box. I have a pretty strong suspicion that some of those will will materialize.
1: love that. I'm excited about that for sure. Well, I hope Uh, everyone is super excited about just the learning about this process and how direct democracy is an option. And if you are interested in seeing something get done, head to The Fairness Project. Where can people find you
2: guys? We're at thefairnessproject.org and on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and everywhere, you know, the internet (laughs) permeates. We are. So the Fairness Project and from there. Yeah. All the places. We love
0: to see it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, chatting with us, giving us the four on one on this very important topic. And whew, we're gonna have to, you know, get back to this conversation twenty twenty three and twenty twenty four, because this process isn't over. No. Ever.
2: <laughs> it's never over. Just more good work to do out there than can ever really be done. So we're totally. privileged and proud to be part of it. And thanks so much for having me.
0: Yes, thanks of for course. coming. Out. Thank you. Okay, well, we are super excited to have you not just on our IG live, but for a full episode because. We need to get in to all things Arizona, specifically reproductive freedom wise. There is lots to talk about. We need a full episode for this. Let's just (laughs) put it very clearly. But we do want to give everyone that didn't get to tune into the IG live yet a little bit of background. You work for Arizonans for Reproductive Freedom. Can you give us the background as to what you guys do, how you got into this space? How do all these things sort of come together?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So Arizonans for Reproductive Freedom is a political action coalition. We were formed really within a couple of days after we got the Alito leak from the Supreme Court, where we had a pretty good feeling that Roe was going to be overturned in the Dobbs decision. And so we are a group of people who are past and present reproductive advocates. We have activists, We have experienced field organizers who have worked to campaign. We have abortion providers and those organizations, as well as, you know, attorneys and policymakers and, and, and then just concerned citizens as well who wanted to join in and have their voice be heard and help us get this off
1: the ground. Totally. That's amazing. Well, how did you get into the political space and not only the political space, which is a monster of its own, but specifically (laughs) just like fight for reproductive freedom? What is your journey here? Yeah.
3: So I have an education background in political science and public policy. I went here to the University of Arizona and started out in politics, burned out very quickly as Mm -hmm. one does because it can be very hard. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Especially, I think I was in my very early 20s and really just trying to find myself still. And then in the midst of that space where there was so much pressure it was really difficult yeah. to to keep the ground underneath my feet i think So I did that for a number of years and then left. However, I always stayed in the background working on campaigns, helping with different caucusing depending on the state that I was living in, ballot initiatives, all of that sort of stuff. I always tried to stay involved in field work. And then I have always been a reproductive advocate. It's something that I feel very strongly about. And about a year ago, we had right around the time that we knew SB8 was going to be enacted in Texas, which of course is their six week, abortion ban, which is now obviously expanded. The Women's March National Organization was looking for volunteers in cities to take on some of the grassroots organizing. And I thought, well, this is something I I feel good about. I have experience in, so I'm going to go ahead and throw my hat in and volunteer to do this in Tucson. And as it turned out, Tucson is this beautiful, rare gem. We're like a blue dot in our purple. And so I was able to really quickly organize on behalf of Women's March and create not just protests, but also rallies and informational community events so that I could get reproductive rights and reproductive resources out in front of people in our community. And then beyond that, also looking at the feminist agenda, which is very intersectional. There are all of of these issues that come together and reproductive freedom is just one of them. So in my work that I had been very successful in that volunteerism, and again, still working with some candidates and doing some low-level political. Political work. And then when we got the leak, some friends of mine who were also part of the coalition said, Hey, we're trying to identify all of our stakeholders. And we think that Amy should be in the room on this as well. And so really it was just this beautiful way that our coalition came together where we did a really good job of figuring out who the community stakeholders would be. And so obviously I jumped in right away because the option to do nothing just never even occurred to me.
0: Mm -hmm. Totally. Totally. And wow, we're Jinx, 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 jinx. I will see you at the soda fountain later. Thank you. (laughs) That aside, this whole thing like coming together is such like a cool story. And obviously it's amazing. We need more and more of it. But for us, like when the leak happened and we're just sort of figuring out, okay, like what are the action items? Like how do we get people to organize? How can they pitch in? And, you know, this came on our radar as well as an option. These constitutional amendments are really great way of protecting enshrining rights. And I'm curious for you guys how this kind of came onto your guys's radar as something you could take on and something that, you know, could be, you know, really put in front of voters. I know like it's a race to get a- enough signatures, but you know, uh, from your guys's on how you guys be like, okay, we're going to do this. And this is the strategy we're going to use. You know, what was that process like?
3: Yeah, so really early on, we had to identify what Arizona state politics looks like. And although we are a purpling state and Tucson is very blue and our major counties are too, Maricopa County also is overwhelmingly blue now, despite what our polling might look like from the outside. The, the day-to-day is much different. And so what, what we really wanted to keep in mind is that we have tried statutory initiatives in the state of Arizona before. Um, most famously, we had one that was surrounding education Arizona, as you may have heard, has a, a voucher expansion so people can use tax dollars for private schools, which we're not a fan of because our public schools now are ranked last in the nation. And so we, as, as people of Arizona, created a ballot initiative to redirect that funding and fully fund our public schools again. And we got it passed. It got on the ballot. We got it passed. It was a you know beautiful piece of legislation that, that the people were able to formulate for ourselves. And our state legislature immediately took to challenging it because our legislature and our governor's office are still Republican-led. And so eventually, because they continued to fight it in court, it was thrown out by our state Supreme Court, which is, again, very biased. And... So we knew that if we went that route, that there would be a higher likelihood that we would face challenges that would ultimately lead to it being thrown out altogether. And we mm-hmm. simply didn't want to take that risk. You know, yeah. we learned a lesson by watching what happened there. And so that, that was the first thing. And then Arizona also is a state, I think there's 18 states where the people can bring about a constitutional amendment. And we had this beautiful window of time. We had about six weeks where we thought, well it's 356,000 signatures but maybe maybe we could pull this off and so we went for the the strongest form of legislation we could get in that period of time and and that's really how the amendment was born it was it was just a you know a lot of calculating to determine how we could protect reproductive freedom the
1: the best way yeah well let's get into like that process of how that gets going and get all of our definitions in order because we want to start with our I Have a Stupid Question segment and kick it off with just like explaining what really is a petition in terms of like, obviously, like we know what change.org is, like how (laughs) does petitions come into play with the government and actually making change in policy? Sure. So
3: when you have an idea for a piece of legislation, you typically have somebody who can write legalese very well, almost always an attorney, although there are policy writers. And once you get somebody on your team to write a piece of policy, then you take it to your state secretary or I'm sorry, your secretary of state's office and you file it. And then they give you something that looks like this. I'm going to see if oh, you can all see this. yeah. This is actually one of our petitions. And so this is page one, and then it is essentially, there's like a brief up here that tells you what our petition is about. Mm-hmm. We have to know who's registering it. And then it's all these signatures, 15 signature lines. And you have to go around and get people who are registered voters. In this case, it was statewide, not just in a county. So statewide registered voters had to sign this. And as you can sort of see, these lines are super tiny. Like if mm-hmm. it is, as, it's not even as thick as my index finger. And one of yeah. the bizarre rules is that you cannot have any part of your signature, your address, your printed name cannot go outside of those lines. Mm. Or the Secretary of State does not count that as a valid signature.
1: Oh my God! Really? So you, yeah, that's so, an Arizona thing. <laughs> it's like I, I have well, like a big curly Q, guys. <laughs> yeah, you you would be surprised Most people at how much have you got really extra signatures. Like
3: exactly. It doesn't make any sense. And Arizona is one of the most strict states, but there are similar pieces or similar rules in other states as well. Arizona Absolutely. just tends to be very, very strict about what kind of signatures they'll, yeah, they're I willing like, to take. I've
1: signed a few of those outside of Trader Joe's in California, and I know I'm doing my big signatures. So yeah. Here, yeah. But...
3: Make, sure, make sure to ask, I don't know what the California law looks like right now, yeah. but sometimes also if, if somebody has gone way out of the line, then we would just have to skip down a line So that it would not interfere with the next person's and and then again, there is there's sort of discretion again at the Secretary of State's office about whether or not they'll accept that so it's it is really, really challenging. I have
1: another question about that. When you're in the process of getting those signatures, obviously, you have to get registered voters signatures. Is there a way that you guys check registration when you do that? Or is it just like you just trust that people are registered and they say when they say they are?
3: we just got to trust them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We just have to trust them. Yeah. Ultimately that job is done by the secretary of state's office as well. Again, like this happens most often, as, as you know, if you've signed a petition, it's somebody out in front of a store or at a community event with a clipboard asking for your signature. And there really isn't a resource for us to determine registration at that time. And really, I mean, there were some petitions that we went through where people from South Dakota signed, you know, I mean, and that's not a valid signature, but that onus falls on the Secretary of State's office to figure out it, which signature is valid.
0: Mm-hmm. Got it. Totally. Sorry. Especially I and can see okay. that being super confusing because like everyone, like you could be from another state and really want to help people in another state and being like, okay, yeah, yeah. sure. Put my my John Hancock on this line and it'll help and yeah, see where it goes. So yeah. I definitely see how that could happen. and. Wow, some interesting old school processes for sure. Like I would hope that this would be electronic at this oh point, but goodness. we know it's not. Yeah. We we do have I feel like a QR code right? would be
3: great. Exactly. You know? In in Arizona we do have an equal petition option, but it is not for any sort of ballot initiative. It's only for candidates. So if you're running for office, you can direct somebody and they it's it's actually much more efficient because They log in, they have to register their voter identification. So they'll have a little number at the end of their voter ID card and they put in their address and then they use an electronic signature in order to make sure that a candidate can get on the ballot. There's absolutely no reason in the state of Arizona why we can't have that for ballot initiatives, except that they want to sort of hamper that direct democracy.
0: Well, that's the perfect segue to our next question, which is literally what is direct democracy? Sure, so direct democracy
3: is the process of people getting legislation on the ballot without going through their legislators. So ordinarily, when we, you know, look at laws being made, it's a lot of people who we elected coming up with ideas for what sort of policies they want to see, and then sort of gathering mm-hmm. their caucus around them to get them voted into law. But in terms of direct democracy, it is literally people saying, this is what we want to see as a law in our state. This is what we want to see as an amendment to our constitution. In our and so we are going to lead this, this charge, and then it, it falls on us to sort of formulate our own caucus through the gathering of signatures, but it is the most direct way for people to have to play a part in the legislative process.
0: Got it. Makes sense. Okay. Now this is one that I didn't even realize till last week when I was looking, I was deep in the secretary of state's website and I was like, huh, this is a role I haven't heard of before. And that is county recorder. What is that? Who is a county recorder? Need the deets. Yeah. So a county
3: recorder is the person who is in charge of taking care of public records for that county. And then also at election time, they are in charge of managing all of the election rules. So in our case, we have in Arizona something called the permanent early voting list. So a lot of us, greater than 80% of us, get our ballots in the mail about a month ahead of the primary. Mine actually just came a few days ago and our primary is set for August 2nd. And so the ballot will come in the mail and our recorder is in charge of making sure that that ballot meets all state laws, that it is all of the envelopes are correct in terms of the way that they need to be returned. And then when those are collected, the county recorder's office will also oversee those and make sure that all of those ballots are valid and ready to be counted and really we are are very lucky in in Arizona because by and large our county recorders are very good at what they do and sort of infamously we are you know one of the states where some of our crazies tried to challenge the 2020 election and it was our county recorders who stood up and said no we did our jobs our election was valid and they really stood strong and so the county recorder plays a much more important role than I think all of us realize.
0: Yeah, totally. Like talk about underrated job of the year, month, century. I'm not sure what we're gonna measure yeah, by, a but like, absolutely. One too. Absolutely. But
1: absolutely. absolutely. Totally very important.
0: Well moving on,
1: let's talk about, you know, this petition that an initiative that you guys kickstarted after the Alito opinion was leaked and that you were hoping to get on the ballot this year. Can you kind of explain what happened and what was the amendment and give everybody the kind of a quick swinger on, on that and, and where it's at now. Yeah, absolutely. So again, we
3: decided that the best way to go about this would be to enshrine reproductive freedom into our Arizona state constitution. And the way that looked for us was to protect everything from contraception through postpartum care so that anybody could make any of those decisions about their own reproductive rights on their own and have all of those decisions between them and their doctor, as opposed to having the state involved at all. The other aspect of that too, is that again, like the United States has a really dark history of forcibly sterilizing some people and groups and so the other part of the constitutional amendment is simply to say you can't do that either each person and their physician are the only people who have the right to determine if and when they reproduce and so we formulated that we got a petition or we got the initiative filed we got petitions we went around and we were a about a 97% volunteer force on the ground 3000 volunteers in Arizona wow carried petitions for us and got signatures. And at the end of the day, I believe that we had about 57 days to collect signatures from the time that we filed to the time that our petitions were printed and we got people on the ground. And in that time, we collected more than 175,000 signatures, which is incredible. It's absolutely Mm -hmm. unheard of. That pace is crazy. Unfortunately, we needed 356,000 to make the ballot for this November. So although we fell short of that, We were able to get this incredible coalition of Arizonans who are very much committed to making reproductive freedom a matter of our state constitution. We know that we, if given a little bit more time, certainly can get this on the ballot in the future. And so we've decided to point our focus towards 2024 and look to see if there's something we might be able to do in the short term that would possibly restore now abortion rights and all reproductive freedom in the state of Arizona.
0: Totally. And speaking of 2024, and looking at that benchmark, what needs to be done between like now and then to make sure that happens? And sort of why is 2024 that benchmark? So
3: 2024 is just our next election year for for this cycle. That's just the way our our elections work in Arizona. So we would need to start, well, really, we're already starting to continue to build our community outreach, right? So we know that we can do this with volunteers where our pace was just incredible. And so it, it, we are going to continue to reach out to community partners. We're going to continue to grow our coalition and have our communications be such that everybody understands what it is we're trying to do and the frame of time we now have to get this put onto the ballot in 2024. And we will do that from now until November. And then if no other solution presents itself. So assuming that somehow federally we we don't get rowback or there's, you know, some sort of a miracle that happens to protect abortion rights. We will then file again in November after this coming election, which is the next window of opportunity for us to file a valid initiative for 2024. And we'll just hit the ground running and do it all over again. And I I look forward to that because I know that we will definitely get the signatures we need. Mm
1: -hmm. So you just have to wait till this November election happens and then you can start getting petitions for a 2024. Election. Right. That's yeah, wow, nice. Let's talk about like the governor's race too, and how that is going to impact really just reproductive freedom and, you know, protecting it. Can you kind of explain that of how this plays a big role and in, in really reaching that goal?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So the governor has the final say really via veto power in the state of Arizona. So if legislatures continue to push for abortion bans, which we know they have, once it gets to the governor's desk, that person can determine whether or not they are going to sign or veto that. And in Arizona, again, we only lack, Democrats lack two seats in the House and two state two seats in our state Senate from being a blue legislature. Hmm. So the the Republicans would not have the ability to override a veto in the state of Arizona on a piece of legislation that bans abortion. So if we had Uh, a Democrat in office as governor right now, we simply would not be looking at the bans that we already have in place. We would still have abortion protection. It is 100% because our governor is a Republican and has continued to say falsely that Arizona is a strictly pro-life state, that we are in this position today. And so we do have some excellent candidates, one in particular who's sort of of pulling away from the rest right now in the primary and uh hopefully reach the office and, and make it a democratic office this november and hopefully we can flip the legislature too
1: because really that's the yeah. quickest means to an end yeah totally wait sorry question so sure. if you were to get the signatures put on the ballot and then the voters pass it the governor can still veto that
3: not in this case. No. So oh. that that would be like the state legislature. Our state legislature has enacted several different types of abortion restrictions over time. In fact, prior to the Dobbs decision, Arizona had some of the most restricted, restrictive abortion laws already. We had a 24-hour waiting period. We had an ultrasound mandate. There were the pre-abortion counseling mandate and it didn't matter like what your circumstance was a 14 year old kid really like this is a real life example a 14 year old young woman walked in with her mother she had been raped by her uncle and she had to go through that pre-abortion counseling service before she was allowed to have that procedure and as it turns out Dobbs overturned Roe, and she was not able to have the procedure at all, which again is a what? nightmare. And so, again, we have we already had such terrible restrictions, and if we had not had Republican leadership in the governor's office, we wouldn't have been looking at any of that. So, I, again, oh like gosh. it's it's really important that we continue to get out the vote and that we vote blue this November.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, without a doubt. And one one role we also want to speak about within here is secretaries of state. I feel like this is definitely Mm -hmm. one of those underrated roles or until maybe the last few years, people really haven't been chatting about them. They're sort of the like, you know, in the background, like quiet guy in the corner situation, but really important here. Can you tell us a little bit about how important this role is for ballot initiatives, for making sure things actually get on the ballot and also protecting elections a little bit?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I, I do think that since 2020, the focus has been shifted on states and, and who have powerful secretaries of state. Again, ours is Katie Hobbs. And she again famously said, no, this is this was a valid election. Here are all my receipts. This was great. So it, it is the focus is shifted there. And I'm really grateful for that because I think a lot of times people come out and they vote in general elections when they think that they're going to get the senator or the president that they want. And they forget that where all of this happens is at the state level. So the Secretary of State's job is to, as I mentioned, to oversee and to validate all of the signatures if it comes to a petition and, and a ballot initiative. It She or he have the oversight in terms of how to execute the office and, and make sure that the people who are working for them have clear rules set about how to validate signatures, something that simple. And then when you're talking about elections, all of the election rules, like from Um, being able to decide in a, in the middle of a global pandemic that people should have expanded access to voting from home to making sure that we have enough valid polling stations for in-person voting. All of those things follow under the jurisdiction of the secretary of state. And so it's, it is a critical job uh, being able to make sure that we
1: all maintain our right to vote. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What are some of the, you know, potential blocks and hurdles you guys are preparing for to get this initiative back in front of voters. You know, for sure. I think the biggest
3: one at the moment is really just maintaining the messaging. I, it's really funny how hard you get raked over the coals when you have failed at something, or when that's the perception, right? Yeah, we mm-hmm. had this really funny ha- thing happen last week where our all of our comms team, our messages, our phones had been ringing off the hook. We couldn't even balance this all out, and then suddenly we didn't get enough signatures, and it was eerily quiet. And we were thinking. Mm why don't they want to hear from us? Why don't they want to, you know, some mm. sort of a statement. And very quickly people shifted the narrative. Like, is it because this wasn't popular enough? Is it because, yeah. you know, they, any, any number of things, but the reality is it, it is just a perception issue. And so we will continue to excite people. We know that we have the momentum on our side. And so we're going to strike right now and make sure that we're able to keep talking about how important yeah. this is. And, and regardless of, who we vote in in, into office in Arizona in the fall, we have to continue to consider this because we will not be Democrat forever, right? Like we know that no matter what happens, the parties are eventually going to change. And we don't want anybody in the future to face what we're facing right now in Arizona either. So the hurdle is certainly just to continue to push that momentum. I think also, you know, we, we will need to do a better job of making sure that all of our community partners are as invested this time around as well. I don't see a reason why that wouldn't happen, but I, I do want to make sure that we have all of the support from our communities that we need.
1: Yeah. What were some of like the... I guess reasons that you might not even know this obviously it just happened last week. You're probably still doing the research to figure out like, you know, what needs to happen to really get the over 300,000 signatures, which is a lot, which is like a reason alone of why you couldn't get there, especially in such a short amount of time. Was there anything else that you noticed that was you know, hard, hard to get all of those signatures or was it really just the time frame and the, and the amount needed? It really was just time. That was our biggest
3: hurdle. There was, you know, there was some misinformation and disinformation, which you have to expect with this sort of thing. We have some people who are part of the American family, whatever council who, you know, are are very right wing and they would try to spread whatever they could and say that we were allowing for, you know, a a baby to be aborted after birth. That's, it's not even possible, but (laughs) that, right. Right. You
1: know, just aborted uh, through labor. Yes. Is that what you mean? Yes,
3: exactly. Yes. That's exactly right. Like, it doesn't make sense, but these are the talking points that these people yeah. use. And then, of course, they know that that's going to incite an emotional response. And so it's that sort of thing that, that you can't avoid in this sort of situation. We know that abortion is a sensitive topic for some people. Why in 2022, I don't know, but we know that we're always going to have some of that pushback. Mm -hmm. But apart from that, it really was just the time. And again, you know, I don't know if you saw, but Michigan was able to get their abortion ballot measure and they had 800,000 signatures, but it took them two years in order to reach oh. that, and and we got one hundred seventy five thousand in fifty seven days. So yeah, looking at that, yeah, outpacing, I think, um, really uh, all of the other initiatives was a really
1: big deal. So I yeah. feel confident that we'll be able to get over that. Totally, totally. I didn't know they were doing it for two years. That's that, yeah. That makes you guys look. That's really impressive what you guys pulled off. Yeah, lots so to be proud
0: of. Well, speaking of getting the message out there and continued you know to be on all the waves and all of that where can people find you guys where can people support and what times in the fall should they look out for other dates and things Yeah. So you can always
3: go to our website. It's www.azreproductivefreedom.com. All of our information is there. There's a donate link we will have in a page up as well. And look for those really even before the fall. We, We have a planning meeting coming this next week. And I think that there will be some announcements coming out of our committee really soon in order to let people know that we're here, that we're not giving up on this battle, that we won't give up until we've restored reproductive freedom in Arizona. So be looking there. And then again, in November, make sure that you vote. And then make sure that you come back and stay in touch with us to determine uh, how to to get out and sign the next ballot initiative that we'll be having for you. And then Ultimately, if you really want some great advice about how to assemble a team, you can always email (laughs) us at info at azreproductivefreedom.com. And then one of us will get back to you with a very, an an easier outline for how to identify those stakeholders and find some people who can really write policy and understand how to do this in your state as well.
1: Thank you. Thank you for all that. Thank you for all of this. Of course. Thank you. And yeah, you've been super helpful answering all our questions here, but also on our IG live. So we're super happy to yeah. have had you and made this connection, but thank you. And we'll be cheering you guys on and thank let you. us know what else we can uplift in this next kind of push for 2024.
3: Sure. Thank you so much for having me back again. I really appreciate this. It's so helpful for all of us. It really uh, raises our spirits.
0: Good, good. Us too, making those moves. Thank you so much for coming on. And can't wait to keep working together.
3: Thank you, likewise.